0: which are known as Psalms of Lament. And finally, at last, we're about to break through the surface a bit and get, as I like to tell those when we were studying Ecclesiastes, kind of come up for air a little bit here um, in Psalm 8. And So please, as, as, as we begin, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Psalm number 8. Now, in my college years, I spent some time working with international students on the campus of Iowa State University while I was there. And uh, many people from my church would often volunteer to be mentors, in essence, um, for these international students who would come to the university in order to study, and we would use this as a great opportunity to uh, create an access point to share the gospel, to build relationship for the, uh, the nations were at our doorstep. We didn't have to go to them, they were coming to us. And... Um, These gospel sharing opportunities would take place kind of through sharing the word throughout daily life uh, with these students. It wouldn't necessarily be a uh, gotcha moment, but this would be through building relationship and slowly presenting the gospel. And as I prepared to go over to East Asia for a few months, uh, I decided to go ahead and join in. And so I signed up to be be a, a mentor for this one Chinese PhD student. And now, this, this young man, who was far older than I was at the time, but this young man was very, very friendly. He was a very kind uh, young man, very outgoing, uh, very, how, how could I say, flirtatious with those of the female students who came along to this mentorship program. And, uh, man, when the mood struck, this guy's smile could, could make a killing. And uh, so, truth be told, I, I don't believe... That really, in, in my time with him, there were very many times where I wasn't seeing just this raging smile on his face. And so, at one point, uh, we decided that we were going to take our, our mentees, our, our, our students, out into the wilderness. And what we were going to do uh, was drive out several, several miles out in, into the countryside of Iowa, and we were going to go to this abandoned rock quarry. Uh, that had been converted to this spanning uh, park, the state park. And it was this beautiful open place, and we were going to start a fire and roast some s'mores and see what happened. And so we, we drove out a- into, the, into the distance uh, toward, this, uh, toward this quarry, and we, we made access into it. We drove down quite a bit into the, the, the depth of the earth, and, and we came upon the edge of this type of man-made lake. And so we decided this, this would be as good of a place as any, and so we set up shop, we lit our fire. And all the while, as the sun began to descend from the sky, the sky began to light a fire with these various hues of pink and orange and, and tinges of green and blue and purple. And it was this majestic wave of colors, this explosion of beauty in the sky. And I'm pretty certain that had I had an ice cream scoop On my person at the time, I would have sought to reach up and take a scoop of this because it looked like the most beautiful, delicious sky that had ever been painted. And all the while, my Chinese friend who rode along with me smiled and laughed and played and didn't notice a lick of the glory around him. The radiant sky turned darker and darker until the light was near to gone, and no longer was there any color dancing over top the reflective uh, flash of the lake. And so we had set up camp beside this lake and and the sky turned from sherbet to gray to black. And I stopped paying any attention to the sprawling canvas that God had laid over our heads. And after quite a bit of time, as we were sitting and the fire was going and the jokes were flying, we were having a delightful time, I became suddenly aware that my friend was no longer sitting around the fire with us making jokes and being silly. And so I got up and and I kind of began looking about through the the haze of that well-lit area that dissipated into dim dark. And I noticed that there was a, a figure kind of standing over beside the lake, obscured by the bright light of the fire in which I stood. And so I prayed in that moment that the Lord might finally get this man, to get this neighbor of mine, to open his eyes, to see the beauty of the Lord, of glory. And I, uh, I began to walk down toward the lake beside him. As I stepped toward him and I left the blazing glow of the fire behind, something interesting happened as I stepped out of that warm little circle where suddenly the skies opened up around me. My eyes suddenly adjusted to the pitch black surroundings that I had been utterly unaware of in the entire evening while I was sitting beside this fire. And simultaneously, my eyes were open to the vast shimmering splendor of the stars that hung silently twinkling in the sky. And uh, for, for just a moment, I, I hesitate to say just for a moment because it was probably far longer, just for a moment my mouth dropped. And as I took each step closer to my friend, my mouth dropped further as my eyes began to adjust and see the glimmer of lights that were just inexplicable hanging in the night sky. I stood there and began to peel my eyes off of the night sky for just a moment to take a look at my friend who stood slack-jawed staring into the sky. My eyes were very quickly pulled back to the stars to stare at their radiance. And yet, I found my head began to look down at the stars instead. You see, this lake had an odd effect as we stood beside it. Because my, my eyes could not perceive any slightest of movements on this lake. There was not a, an ounce of breeze or wind. And so the sea before, the the lake before us, stood as this glassy reflection. Which gave this odd illusion that I had somehow fallen into space. And I stood overlooking the edge of the universe, utterly surrounded and lost in the endless sea of black and glittering diamonds. A roar of laughter from behind me kind of Pulled me out of my awestruck stupor for just a moment. And I realized that I didn't know how long I had been standing there silently beside my friend, who had been standing there far longer than I. And in the spanning glory of God's stars, it seemed I had been dumbstruck and silent as it felt overwhelmingly wrong. To disgrace the majesty before me with the crack of my voice. Nonetheless, I, I kind of rallied myself. I ventured to ask him a question. So I simply asked him this Who do you think put those up there? He stood quietly for a moment and drew in a breath that kind of made me think that he'd been forgetting all the while to breathe. He never moved his eyes an inch toward me. They stayed transfixed upon the sky above. But he simply replied, not me. It is in like awe and wonder that we turn to Psalm 8. And we find our forebrother David as he sets his voice to song and his pen to page in the eighth psalm so if you could follow along as i read aloud from god's perfect sufficient word the eighth psalm to the choir master according to the gitteth a psalm of david O lord our lord that you were mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavily, heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We find ourselves in the hands of our brother David as he stands in awe of the Lord God. One particular thing I love of this psalm is there's no build-up in the Song of David's. Rather, it's, its opening lines are just an eruption of praise, a powerful emotional response showing that David's mind has long been pondering the glory that is set before him that reveals this God. Some theologians have said of this psalm that it's a devotional composition of the first chapter of Genesis. Like he just cracked open his Bible and couldn't get beyond the view before him. What we have is David's wheels spinning as he reads God's word. His eyes lifted about him as he looks at creation around him. And his heart bursts into song for the glorious praise of our God. And in this psalm we will hear as David gives glory to God for at least Three things. Two of these ways that David glorifies God are clearly known to him. And one he does so possibly unaware of the fullness that his writing will take. Point number one. For those of you who wish to follow along in note taking. We will see David glorifies God's difference from man. In verses 1 through 3. Point number 2. We will see that David glorifies God's goodness to man. In verses 4 through 9. And finally we will bring to the conclusion that David glorifies God's Savior of man. Throughout verses 1 through 9. For those of you scribbling madly, they will be left up on the screen as I introduce them. In Psalm 8, we hear that David first admires the excellent glory of God in heaven and earth. But most of all, he will sing the love of God by which he has so wondrously exalted vile man. So first we turn to David glorifying God's difference from man. First, David proclaims, O Lord, our Lord. Now, this is not simply an introduction found on a letter such as, Dear God, rather this is an outburst of praise. O Lord, our Lord, he says. There is an emotional impact that purports from his lungs. Now, if you look at your English translation, what you'll see is that one word for Lord here is all capitalized, while the second, only the letter L is capitalized. Why is this, you ask? Great question. Because here, David uses two different words to address God. Both are translated correctly in English to Lord. But David uses two names that God is known by here. First, O oh Lord, he says, Yahweh. This is the name of the Lord in his own personal revelation of himself. There Moses is, standing upon a mountain before a burning bush, and the Lord, the creator of the universe, God has told him to go and stare down the mightiest empire yet known to the globe. Moses cries out, but who do I say sent me, O God? To which the Lord responds, I am that I am Yahweh. This is a name of God that is immense and powerful. It is a claim of absolute sovereignty and authority. This is the name that points to the fact that God was not created but ever existent. He never began and he will never end. He always is, was, and will be as he is. He is unchanging, unshifting, immutable. He is the existent one, the one through whom all other things find their beginning and their existence. He is I am. Oh Lord, our Lord. Adonai here is the name that David uses to give attention. To give uh, attention to the rulership, particularly, of God. The authority of Him over all things. It can easily be translated as governor, leader, ruler, master. Thus here, David begins the 8th Psalm with an overwhelming cry, O Yahweh, our ruler, O God, my King. What a magnificent way for the king of a nation to cry out as but a lowly boy alongside his people before his mighty king. This praise is not empty, nor is it out of duty. Thus David gives us this theme of his psalm. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. What is it that has led to, to David's state here? It's that he's been pondering God's majestic name in all the earth. By pondering his revelation of himself through all creation around. This is what allows David to sit in awe. God's glory as revealed by the Lord to man is above the heavens. You know, the Jews spoke of, of three heavens. The first being the skies above which the birds fly in, as we can read in Psalm 104.12. The second is the starry heavens that are spoken of in Psalm 19.1. And the third is the heaven of heavens, or the third heavens where God particularly manifests himself, of which Christ himself speaks in Matthew 6, 36. Here David cries out that all of these heavens are no container large enough to hold or or contain the mighty God. This God, the creator of the universe, is the boundless one. He who created all things is outside of all things. Here David's mind is bending as he contemplates the majesty of God. And he's reached a point where he has exhausted his own human means of understanding. So he simply cries out, You have set your glory above the heavens. Oh, the ocean is crushingly deep. Yet it is a thimble. Before the vastness of our God. The universe may be infinite. But yet God is infinitely beyond. He is over and above. He is in and through. He is fully filled. And is not limited within. This God is magnificent. He is boundless. And he is beyond David's comprehension. His glory is above all creation. And yet David marvels that his glory is nonetheless seen in his creation. Verse 2, David says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David turns his attention then to not simply look at the vast cosmic glories of God's creation, but to the intricate beauties created by his pristine and intentional finger. He's been looking, you could say, through the telescope at the wonders of God about, but now he turns his attention to look through the microscope. The word David uses here in our English translation for infants In the original means suckling ones. The type of baby that is nursed by his mother. Out of this vast cosmic greatness, he turns to the tiny nursing newborn. Out of the mouths of babies and by suckling infants, says David, do we see that you have proven your glory. You've not proven only your existence, but your personal hand in it. You see, David knows God is not a God who created the dirt and then man put two genders together, spun the earth on its axis and hoped for the best. No, as we read, God's personal intimate creation of each and every individual as we see in ecclesiastes eleven five, as solomon says as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child so you do not know the work of god who makes everything oh each child knit by his David says in Psalm 139, 13, For you you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. He did not create most things, but all things. And David sits in pondering as he thinks of the baby nursing at his mother's breast. What a glory. There in that cute little squishy person is this image of God. There in that floppy little grub is a heart at worship of something. In the eyes within that baby's head that can hardly see to his mother's face are the eyes that God fashioned to capture light, reflect, and image and translate that image into such a way that the brain can seek to interpret and understand what is before it. God here says that there is no power to match from his enemies that will be able to overthrow the power found in the simplest of children's songs. O you who labor all day with your children, Mothers whose lives are given over to the teaching and training of your children, forget not that the depth of the importance of your work. Forget not that the humdrum of dirty diapers and snack times is no second level of life that would be better if only you could get out and have a career. No, mothers, you wield a great and incredible responsibility for God says he has marked a power to still his enemies that can come from the lips of those little ones that you wipe off for the 15th time today. O oh, fathers, forget not that whatever your responsibilities may be in the world, you are held most highly to your responsibility in the leading of your home, the directing of your family's daily worship, Here there is power to still the foes of God. Yet how often do we pick the lesser to fault for the greater responsibility? God is the glorious one. He uses what is weak, the insignificant, the uneducated. He uses the songs of children, the nursing of infants in this world to show his glorious power that all, that all who look at his works Might know that all glory belongs to none but Him. Have you thought of the process of pregnancy? How, through just the physical code of a mother and father, an eternal being is brought into this fleshy mass? Lungs develop in this being that will begin to practice breathing by God's command before it is free from the mother's womb where there is air to breathe. In the chest of this fleshy little nugget there is a heart that will begin beating and pushing blood through the veins laid out as a track by God's fingers. This heart will begin beating by God's command and it will not cease until he declares it be so. So by the mouth of babes and by the suckling of infants is the Lord's might and superiority established over all who care to challenge him. David glorifies God's difference from man. His glory and his right standing as God over all things. Yet when looking upon the Lord, David cannot help but better also understand man. Let us look to when David glorifies God's goodness to man. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. David again turns his eyes heavenward and sees all the massive stars and the planets. He sees all that God had to hardly lift a finger to create. To show the ease of God's capacity to create all things. David uses language man is able to understand. To say all was made by his fingers. Though God is spirit, he has no fingers. were you to fill up a large bucket of muddy water. You go out to Possum Kingdom Lake, you dip it to the bottom, and you pull it all the way out. You carry it into your kitchen, and you dump it all over the floor. Don't do that, it's Mother's Day. But should you do so, oh, what a substantial mess it would make, would it not? but you take that same bucket of muddy water and you go pour it out into the center of the Pacific Ocean, the ocean level will remain entirely the same. Not a drop of that bucket would even be noticed as to the vastness of that watery ocean. So it is with the Lord our God. Could you take all the vastness of the earth with all of its host? Should you bind all of the skies together Should you harness the unending vastness of deep outer space with all of its planets, its supernovae, that's how you pronounce it apparently, the black holes, the moons, the suns, the galaxies, you bind it all up together, and should you take all of the imaginary possibilities of all created things from all that God has made in eternity past unto a distant eternal horizon, and should you cram all of this into one created mass, it would still not measure in size even to make the slightest drop in the bucket before our infinitely glorious God. This God, He fills immensity. This God, He overflows infinity. And so David's mind reels because God's face and loving gaze is uniquely expressed toward finite man. The children made from dirt are fashioned by His very hand whose fingers graced creation with each star and planet that is yet undiscovered. All things He has set in place. And as Colossians 1.17 says, He holds all things together. So David says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David glorifies God's goodness to man. You see, God does not merely cast us into the vat of his glorious creation with all other things. For this man could consider himself blessed more than he deserves, could he not? If only God would create us and let us be. Just by being created by the same hand that created the Milky Way, would not it deem us more worthy than we are? John Newton once remarked that when he was at a certain stage in his walk with the Lord, he became filled with a great fear and terror, not that he would be punished by God, but that he was in himself being so small and insignificant that he would be utterly overlooked by the Lord God. Yet, God does not merely ignore man. Rather, David says God is mindful of him, that he cares for him. That word care is to visit as one would visit a loved one on their dying bed. This is the understanding of God's ever-present thinking upon man. Not simply in a general sense, mankind is not simply one of the things that God thinks about often. For remember, wherever I may be, God is omniscient. He knows all. Not merely in fact, but in personal intimacy. David's words paint a picture here of lowly man standing always and continually before the ever present and focused face of the Lord God. The Lord at all times, in every place, is always fully and completely thinking about each and every individual person, whoever is and ever was and ever will be. His mind is not off you but for a moment though ever small you may be. Now hold on a minute. That That's not possible, you might say. To which I say, I agree. I agree. For God is nothing like man. He's nothing like me. Oh, what is this God? Who is he who's so vast, so great, so glorious, and yet so intimate and near... David's mind is baffled. That God takes notice of David is one thing. Let alone that a perfect God would take mind of a lowly man and show him favor. What kindness is this? Calvin says of this, that David teaches that God's wonderful goodness is displayed the more brightly in that so glorious a creator whose majesty shines resplendently in the heavens, graciously lowers and debases himself to adorn a creature so miserable and vile as man with his greatest glory and enrich him with numberless blessings. This is absolutely astounding, even just to think, of the nature by which the Lord designed man. He was made of earth. In some ways, man is inferior to other creatures. Go wrestle a bear. I bet you would agree with me. He is not so long-lived. He's not so strong, not so active. And in his walk, he does not have the elegance of some beasts. Penguins, at times, are more elegant in their movements than I. And they just flop. Yet over these, at creation, God gave man perfect dominion, and over which still to an extent, even after the fall of man, we still have authority. What loving kindness is this? That God not only notices man, for this would be enough, but he shows love and favor. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Adam, even when created in the image of God, was infinitely beneath his maker. There is no greater gulf between that which separates the infinite from the finite, the uncreated and the created. In the two genders, man and woman, God put the Lord of glory, set his glory on display. He's even given mankind a unique authority over the earth to represent him to all created beasts. David says, You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. This also seems to be a rehearsal of this glorious word found in Genesis chapter 1. With all of God's loving kindness toward mankind considered, David seems to come to a glorious end. The deep cry in his heart. The deep meditation of his thinking. And he says, Our Lord. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name. In all the earth. He ends in the same place he began. A a deep, heartfelt praise of this God and King. The one who created all and rules all. Oh, he recognizes that he is limited, that his mind could spin forever, seeking to understand the height and depth and width and breadth of who God is and always yet be found wanting. In contemplating the divine glory, often the most and the best that we can do is cry out, how excellent, how wonderful. It is a mark of a wise man to know the limits of human knowledge and of a devout man to adore where he can no longer fathom. David, then, through all of this, stops. Now, if this is is where we could leave it, then indeed all of this would be true and good. But it would also be missing its true fulfillment. You see, David glorifies God's Savior of man through verses 1 through 9. We could here emulate our brother David's praise of this awesome and gracious God and go home And eat a delicious Mother's Day dinner, cooked nor cleaned up by our mothers. But this would be incomplete. David did indeed glorify God's difference from man. David did indeed glorify God's goodness to man, yet possibly unaware to him. David wrote this with his hand of the coming one who would fulfill this psalm to its fullest understanding. Let me convince you with 1 Peter 1, 10-12, which says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This prophet David, he was indeed one of these very men who while moved along by the Holy Spirit, wrote of the salvation to come. We know that this psalm finds its highest and fullest sense when understood in the light of Christ. Of this psalm, Luther himself says, this is a prophecy concerning Christ, concerning his passion, his resurrection, and his dominion over all creatures. You see, it is indeed Christ himself that we see not just the glory of God on display in man's creation. But we see, in fact, God's glory in man. Colossians 1, 15-16 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Speaking of Christ. It was by Christ's hands that all things were created. It is by His hands that all things remain. The very moon that Christ fashioned before He breathed His life into the dust and formed man is the very moon that Christ kneeled beneath as He wept in Gethsemane. We read in the book of Matthew that Jesus entered into the temple and drove out those who had made the house of worship into a house of depravity. After Christ drove out the wickedness of selfish ambition, he began filling the temple with his miracles and wonders. So much so that children began to cry out in praise to the Lord, proclaiming, Hosanna to the Son of David. To which the Pharisees began to seek to rebuke Jesus, saying, Hey, Do you hear what those kids are saying? You ought to shut them up. To which Jesus replies, what? Haven't you read your Bibles? And then he says this. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. You see, it is He that is praiseworthy. It is He that deserves only glory and praise. It is He who is the one whose glory exceeds our wildest claims of self-worth. Our most glorious pondering over His nature. Not only this, but when we turn our attention to the book of Hebrews. When we read of the glory and honor of the Savior in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6-9. through 9, The author of Hebrews says this, it has been testified somewhere. It's okay to forget where a Bible verse is. There's biblical proof. It's always encouraging when an author of Scripture forgets where he left his page turner. He says, what is man that you were mindful of him Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, it is man in general that bears authority over all creatures of the earth. This is true. But it's important to understand That when David penned these words about the one that has authority over all created things, he was writing not about man in general, but about the one that would be challenged in the temple by Pharisees who would ask, by whose authority do you drive out our money changers? Psalm 8 is about Jesus Christ himself. You have made him a little while lower than the angels. This was speaking of Christ. Who dwelling in eternal glory with the Father. Stepped down to the form of a slave. Taking on the flesh of man. You have crowned him with glory and honor. He put off his visible doxa glory and honor. And to take on instead. The glory and honor that the Father desired to bestow upon him. This is that the Lord would be found putting everything in subjection under His feet. And by putting everything under His feet, He left nothing outside of His control. This glory and honor would only come through being crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Why did this God of glory do this? Why would the one who created the angels elect to lower himself for a time lower than these angels? It was so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I think we'll glean some wisdom from David's son here when we turn to Ecclesiastes 7.29. Why is it that this creator God would do such a thing? Solomon says this, after his pondering and searching for meaning in life, as he's coming to an awareness of absolute truths, he says this, "See this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You see, the Lord gave man a place of glory, but man sought instead to return themselves to the dirt. One theologian remarked, "O oh man, God made you little lower than the angels." Sin has made you but a little above Satan. Thus man has rejected the glory given him by the Lord. The world has been subjected to man, yes, but has anyone ever gotten the feeling that that's not really that true? Some birds have decided to begin relieving themselves on my mailbox. That doesn't feel as though that's where I would like them to go. Do you ever empathize with the author of Hebrews as he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Ever had work be more difficult than it ought to be? Ever experience difficulty with animals doing what you don't want them to do? Ever watch as a monstrous wave of water? Or a great funnel cloud of wind? Or a looming billow of fire doesn't exactly bend itself to man's will? Why is that? Because what the Lord made for man to use to glorify Him, man chose instead to use for his own gain and glory. Thus all creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but by He who subjected it, and now all of creation groans for the day it is to be restored to its right function and order. So for now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. The world does not function under the authority of man in general. Rather, it is Christ to whom all creation has been made subject. Creation is not under the control of man. It is under the sovereign control of one man. And he will one day restore all things, setting right all wrongs, restoring man to his right position before the Lord of all those and only those who are in him. Psalm 8 is looking forward to the day when the king of man would not only magnify the creator of the world, but the day that that creator king would arrive. This psalm looks forward to when the Son of Man would be crowned with a crown of thorns that He might take up the crown of glory prepared for Him by the Father since before the foundations of the earth. Psalm 8 looks forward to the day that God will not simply create man in a place of authority but when by the new Adam He would make all things new. We are indeed to stand in awe and wonder of the Creator God from asteroids to umbilical cords. It is all that He created. And all that is created proclaims the power and majesty of the name of Yahweh God, the Lord of all creation. But what ought to leave us in awe is not simply just one time, but as a continual reality. What ought to leave us in awe is not simply the glory of God, but God's love for lowly man who has only ever worked to soil the only glory God has ever given to him. Oh, Lord, our Lord. We see this glorious love most clearly. Most clearly in Christ himself who is ruler of all whether bowing now or after his return do you know the savior is this king of glory the son of man who is the creator of the heavens and the earth is he yours have you experienced the love of christ through faith in him and living in new life under his authority Not simply that you've prayed a prayer, but is he your life? Not simply do you want him to die for your sins, but do you want him to define who you are and what this life ought to look like? I invite you, if you are one of those amongst us not different from us in the slightest, if you are one who believes you are worthy of living in your own way, Deciding for yourself who you think you are, living by your own feelings rather than his word, living for your own life, your own glory. Oh, would you turn? Would you turn? Would you turn and know the one who fashioned you by his glorious hand? Would you come? Behold this glorious King, the Creator who fixes the span of the universe in its place beneath His feet with a single finger. You who are in Christ, you who are are in Christ, would you behold our God? This week as you go about your day, your daily life, would you stand in awe of this Creator, the One who would care for even those lowliest, Is he ruler of all of you? Every inch, every crevice and corner. Is he ruler of all of you or just enough? Just enough to make you think that you're better than the next guy. Would we live our lives in joyful praise of this glorious God? Following in the footsteps of our brother David as he awaits his son. The Son of Man, the Son of God, Himself. O Lord, our Lord, with wonder we gaze on all You have fashioned the heavenly span. Of moon and stars, creation's displays. We ponder our presence in Your glorious plan. O Lord, our Lord, Your excellent name, with all living creatures our voices resound. All earth, all oceans join the reclaim. Our Lord is with us. Our thanks will abound. All of creation gives glory to God. And all of creation was given to man that he might glorify the Lord with it. Let us pray and then stand together and follow in the steps of our brother David and sing praise to our glorious Lord. Father God, thank you for Revealing Yourself. Lord, through, through humble minds, through trembling fingers, You've given us Your perfect, infallible Word. Lord, in all things pertaining to life and godliness, You have directed us to Your worship. Father God, with those in this room who stand before You in only Your anger and Your wrath, might they stand mouth ajar at Your greatness, at Your glorious majesty, but more so at Your patience, yet still With them. Oh, Father, would you allow your holding back of wrath to have its desired effect, to send those who stand opposed to you careening into your arms. Oh, those of us, Lord God, who stand with no righteousness, no good, no glory. Of our own. God, as you have made all things new in Christ, would we stand in awe of you as we are welcomed in not merely as servants and slaves, but as sons and daughters hidden in Christ, conformed and transformed anew, a new birth, no longer bearing the glory of Adam but bearing the glory of the second Adam. Yes. Lord God, would you allow our days, our weeks, our months, our minutes, our seconds to be utterly directed, flowing out in worship of you. Oh you, O oh, Lord, our Lord, Would it be so from the lips and hearts of all who hear your word? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.